Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm an actor-writer with an interest in the intimate. We want to fill the gap in the nation's sex and relationship education through interviewing guests on how we relate to our bodies when it comes to sex, identity and, of course, pleasure. Welcome to Season 4. We're kicking off with a mini-series on parenthood. I'm pregnant with twins and finding mainstream narratives about pregnancy and motherhood pretty narrow. Where are the stories about trans people giving birth? What about the choice to be child-free? And what exactly does a doula do? I want to open up the stories we hear at these pivotal points in our lives. As a GP, I have rather too short conversations with people at these defining moments. This was an opportunity to discuss the decision to get pregnant, to try again after miscarriage to challenge how the society you brought your child into would treat them and you, and have a deeper look at the way our health system handles pregnancy and motherhood as a whole. This is by no means an exhaustive set of interviews, but we hope it's a bold start. Today's guest is renowned childbirth coach and author, Lindsay Bliss. Lindsay has assisted at hundreds of births and is a co-founder of US-based Carriage House Birth, an organisation which trains doulas and provides birth and postpartum support. In her book, A Doula's Guide to Empowering Your Birth, she translates medical language and choices surrounding birth into something we can all understand. If I'm honest, I'd been taught to be suspicious of doulas at medical school, but speaking to Lindsay was transformational and totally turned around my understanding of exactly what a doula does. As well as being a mother of seven, including two sets of twins, Lindsay has dedicated her life to helping others birth babies, working in both prosperous and disadvantaged communities. She shares how her birth experiences made her want to raise the voice of other birthing people to help them make informed choices during this momentous but what can often feel disempowering time. We discuss the issues that worry parents the most, trying to change the language of pain that imbues standard conversations about birth, and how to retain your identity and sensuality as a new parent. Following this conversation, I promptly hired my own doula for my pregnancy, and she has been a complete godsend. The word doula is quite antiquated. I have to say that the word doula is a woman who serves or a woman's servant. And and there has some pretty dangerous roots in that, um, linked to slavery. Um, it's, It's... not my favorite word. It's been a word that we've adopted, but we have changed the definition to be a person who supports another person through a life transition. Birth workers are people that are focused on supporting folks through their childbearing journeys. We have doulas that support folks for gender reassignment surgeries. We have doulas to support people through surgeries. There's also death doulas. So wow. doulas are people that hold space for people during life transitions. And I don't want to say during big life transitions because I don't want to define that. 
somebody may require the support of a doula um, for getting a pap smear. Yeah. So it's it's any life transition that somebody feels they need additional support and space holding. But the term doula is problematic in some ways. I am a full spectrum doula as part of my training, but I really focus on pregnancy and birth personally and twin support. I, I've become the twin doula. Partly because you are blessed with two pairs of consecutive twins. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's what caused me to really seek out uh, becoming a doula. I had a stepdaughter and then I had a singleton, my first birth that I, you know, first child that came through my body. And then I got pregnant with twins. And the journey was so different than with my singleton. It was treated as extremely high risk. I wasn't given many choices. Um, I was pretty much told you have to do this, this or this or the babies will die. And my first birth was an unmedicated birthing center birth. So with my second, I thought I was going to do something similar. And I was told I couldn't have a doula. Um, I was told that I had to have an epidural. You have to deliver in the operating room. Nothing was framed as a choice. And there were a lot of parameters set um, because that is the culture or the recipe for twin delivery in this country. Um, I didn't know that these were choices. And just because you were having twins, you were immediately put into a high risk Immediately, factor. immediately. Mm -hmm. And so there were, you know, and, and you could probably relate to this. There were numerous amounts of ultrasounds and transvaginal ultrasounds and cervix checks and um, biophysical profiles and non-stress tests and things that with my first pregnancy, I'd never had. So I felt like I was pregnant for the first time. Because it was so, and, and I, for my first, I had midwives and I gave birth in a birthing center. Um, so it was a very, very different experience. And there was a noticed difference in the care that I received based on being, it being a twin pregnancy specifically. And so I had to fight during the labor to have a vaginal birth. Sorry, just Lindsay to confirm, an OB is an obstetrics and gynecology consultant, uh, as in a doctor. Correct. Thank you. They were trying to convince me to have a cesarean. There were no indicators that it was necessary. Meaning, and was this on the day of, of yes. you being in labor? Yes. The fighting for the vaginal birth was really tricky for me. And after I gave birth, I was, oh my gosh, what if I spoke a different language? What if my skin was black? What if, like, I felt like I got lucky due to my privilege and my whiteness in a system that didn't allow for informed choice and informed decision-making. And it made me want to be of service, not to be a savior, but to be of service and to be a space holder for people as they navigate through that journey. I feel um, with my pregnancy, I am surrounded by unknown unknowns. Hmm. I don't know the questions to ask because I don't have enough basic knowledge to, to even begin to, to, to make choices, actually. And I definitely don't feel that I'm going to be given that information. I do feel that I have to fight for it and do my homework in my own time uh, to, to a huge degree. And I think that must be very scary for people who you know, either don't have access to resources um, because of various reasons from economic to, uh, to language, 
but yes, imagining being in that room in that high stress situation with English not as your first language. I, I mean, I, I can't imagine actually. It's almost like a light bulb went off, and I know that we have to have our own moment of acknowledgement of our own privilege. And it was a really hard and painful lesson, but it also brought me to this place of it's not fair for people to not know what their choices are. And there are lots of great doctors, there are lots of great OBs and midwives that are stuck in a system that doesn't allow for ethical treatment of humans while they're birthing their babies. You've had this experience then and you've delivered twins vaginally and did you do it without um, medication? So my first set of twins yeah. was in a hospital with an epidural. Okay. I didn't know I had a choice. Right. Yeah, that was the one that was. And then my second set of twins, um, I had a home birth. Wow. I've been told categorically that I'm not allowed that. <laughs> because many midwives can be held liable if something were to go wrong. So some midwives are comfortable with a twin home birth. And the ones that are, there has to be some parameters in place. I think having had a set of twins vaginally already was one of the reasons the midwife that I worked with felt okay with taking me on as a client. I also hired an OB for the majority of the pregnancy up until about 35, 36 weeks. And that also requires the financial means to do something of that nature. Right. It's extreme to hear you use the word hire, just because that's not what we're used to in the NHS. The idea is that you know you would be allocated or you would see a doctor and that would not cost you anything beyond your taxes and national insurance payments. And then you'd work your way through the system and you'd be allocated a midwife and you wouldn't have to employ anyone. Yeah, well, <laughs> welcome to the United States where medicine is a la carte. And if you don't have the financial means, you don't get equitable care, which is where, you know, the care is different in a private hospital compared to a public hospital. There are huge inequities in the level of care that people are receiving here, which, you know, impacts if people make it out of this process alive, because there's still so much racism and it's a system that I think is beyond repair. There are very good people that are working within that system. I have friends that are OBs and I have friends that are midwives and folks that work within a system that I personally believe is beyond repair. Um, I think new systems need to be created, but again, um, I'm not the one to say what those new systems could be because white people aren't being targeted. It's it's folks that are black, brown immigrants. It's, you know, the, the system here is only for one type of person and it's even failing those people. I mean, it's a very, it's an interesting picture that you're painting because, I mean, obviously I, I've been a doctor working in the UK. My training involves having to deliver a certain number of babies, um, which is both exciting and terrifying simultaneously. Because, you know, we would normally uh, be supporting a midwife when you're a student. I mean, when you say supporting, I'm kind of sort of tagging along, getting in their way more than supporting, to be perfectly honest. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, you you can occasionally hold something like a receptacle dish or something like that and be of use. Um, But when you're actually trying to deliver, because you have to have have a set number, uh, the first time that you try it and actually... I mean, I had no idea, for example, that you have to slow the head coming out. 
I, I had no idea that that was meant to happen. And so, you know, the, the midwife was like, no, you need to put your hand there to slow the head coming out of the vagina and then the vulva so that it actually doesn't tear the skin. Um, and you have to make sure you check how dilated the cervix is. And, and you, know, you have to learn all those things. And I recognise that's an incredible process to do. And then when I was a senior doctor and I had to become a trainee and obstetrician, um, we would only get called when there was a problem. So, you know, you wouldn't actually see the normal stuff, the happy, the, the less challenging things, the, the lovely normal births. Uh, but the, you know, I, I appreciate even a normal birth has its own issues of concern for, yes. for everyone involved. <laughs> um, but but it, let's just say one which are medically less high risk, if that makes sense, um, or, or nothing uh, concerning went on during it. Um, but you'd get involved there and there was this sense of wanting to calm the situation down, the sense of there being a high stress uh, situation being, being there because... The, the patient had the sense that why is the doctor coming in? You know, if the doctor is coming in, that means that potentially something is going on. Now, happily, the way that the midwives managed it was so supportive that actually it was just another person who, who is always in the department is coming around to give a bit of advice or support. And we also recognise I have less knowledge about midwifery and delivery than all the midwives have but I, you know there, there, are, there are elements of my knowledge that I can kind of add on and that's part of my training to, to you know learn that stuff and then be able to support midwives with it that actual thing of reading these strips of paper and having to try and interpret that the baby's heart rate doing this means actually they might be under distress or it might be actually that the baby isn't getting enough blood. And that's the difficult thing sometimes, because you're reading a strip of paper, seeing little squiggles go up and down on it, and making an interpretation from these squiggles about what's going on inside a uterus. And there isn't a direct correlation. So I might see something on these, called a tokogram, on these squiggles, that might actually really concern me, but it is entirely possible that the delivery could have continued on vaginally and safely. But it's of higher risk. And the thing that I, was really drummed into me and, and, and why I really sort of recognise what you're saying, you know, there is, sounds like there is too much intervention in lots of ways. But that's because of the concern and terror, really, of either harming the baby or harming the parent or harming both. And because of that high risk stakes and the fact that th who is the person to be blamed generally in those situations, it would be the healthcare professional around that you know and you've got no way of knowing in birth whether it was anything that was done by the healthcare professional or not because unfortunately even with the best intervention and best support in the world or no intervention babies are born with, with um, oxygen deprivation or with the you know, other other birth problems or, or die uh, and it's because it's an, a natural process that we're trying to intervene in and we don't have all the answers yet and being in that situation yourself and, and, and I don't mean this to terrify Naomi, I'm very concerned, I'll tell you. but I think being in the sense of going, actually, I'm trying to have control over a situation in which there are parts there is no control, mm. is recognising that and putting your trust in someone. And you've got to put your trust in either the midwife that's had support of your care, and it's, you hope it's the same midwife that then is birthing your baby, the doctor who, I suppose in America, who would be potentially birthing your baby, who you might not actually get to see, um, or indeed, you know, your own body and your baby doing hopefully what it's meant to do. And I think that process I can understand being terrifying and worrisome, but on but on all sides. I, yeah, I I hear that, and I think you are probably in the minority in the way that you prioritize the birthing person and the baby, because I think ultimately in our country, it's profit over people. And it's defensive medicine and it's the fear of being sued. 
Um, and, and the good care providers and the ones that we recommend wildly are the ones that really care about the outcome and protecting the perineum and protecting the birthing person and the child, but also acknowledging that there are outcomes that do lead in demise and there are outcomes that you can't control. But in, in this country, we see that so many interventions happen as a prophylaxis instead of it being evidence-based. And there lies the problem. The way that folks are trained are to prevent problems from happening due to fear of being sued. I, and and, and I, this is like a systemic thing. This is not speaking about individual doctors. My fight isn't against the OBs or the midwives at all, actually. And, and there are some that I really don't like because they do cause harm and there is obstetrical violence. And it's the thing, as a doula, we bear witness, okay? And I know that there are OBs and some midwives that are, are threatened by us because we bear witness, right? And we talk and we're a community and we hold one another and we hold the care providers accountable, you know, by talking to our communities. Um, yeah, I mean, I want to support our care providers better. I feel like many of the doctors, the reason why certain things are implemented and there are so many interventions is they can't handle their patient load because of what yeah. the hospital puts on them. I, you know, yes. they're, they're, we're losing sense of humanity, humanity for our care providers, humanity for the people that are giving birth. You know, and also allowing for there to be unpredictability in birth. I, it's, there, there has to be something that holds everybody better, where they feel safe and held in a system. I mean, and this is me being very idealistic. Everyone needs to hold each other. And it's not happening here. And, and maybe there's some headway in other places and other systems that are working. I don't know whether it's happening here either, to, to be honest. I mean, I, I don't know what I was expecting when I first sort of began this uh, pregnancy in terms of like the birthing options. Um, certainly, I didn't know I was going to be having twins in, initially. But um, the fact that, you know, for example, it's very normal not to see the same midwife. They'll be on rotation. So you won't have one person necessarily that you would always be in contact with. I found very disorientating and very odd, I thought. What, I don't have a, a specific person to speak to who knows me, who knows what's going on and my concerns and my anxieties and, and knows my body. I was, I was really surprised about that. And also immediately told that this would be an obstetrician-led birth mm. and really strongly guided into a planned C-section. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I, I mean, I'm still on the fence, actually, but I feel... I, I, I'm definitely erring towards C-section because of the kind of horror stories that the midwives have been telling me about, well, what can happen when things go wrong <laughs> and how much intervention can, can happen. And I do feel that that is partly to do with the strain that the NHS is, is under in terms of the rotational system, the fact that you can't have an individual person who is your person to go to, um, which I suppose is where... Certainly in the UK, but it sounds very much so in the States, doulas can fill that gap, actually, that really important gap, potentially, where continuity of support can provide 
I mean, a real um, quality of mental health, I suppose, mm. and reassurance, but also advocacy. And I wanted to ask you a bit about advocacy, about the role of the doula beforehand and in the room. Are you the person who speaks on behalf of the pregnant person or are you there to give confidence to the person mm. who's giving birth? And whether that's part of the reason why people, certain medical professionals and midwives can get their hackles up about them because it might feel like their toes are being stepped upon. I mean, it's that's an amazing, amazing question. Um, doulas are like putting a Band-Aid on a hemorrhage. <laughs> um, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I, but we, we kind of are. And, and my hope would be that our, our role would be completely unnecessary if we could make systemic change to support, like I said, the care providers and the birthing people really in an equitable way. Um, I would love to work my way out of a job, honestly. Um, <laughs> and as far as advocacy goes, it's, it's complicated. Um, I don't advocate, like I, I obviously have my own feelings about a lot of things. I'm very opinionated. I'm not everybody's right. flavor, um, full <laughs> disclosure. Um, and I don't practice my advocacy on someone's body. So if I witness something that unfolds that I view as violence or I, I'm following the lead of my client and their response and I'm supporting them. So I am never making decisions for my clients and how they want to respond to anything. That would be harmful of me. If yeah. somebody is flat out lying to my client, which okay. has happened, which has happened, I will pull aside a partner and let them know like, hey, that's actually not fact-based. And, and I would implore you to question this if you want. Wow. I kind of melt into the walls. I don't come in aggressive. I come in asking like who wants coffee, tea, or a donut. Um, I try to humanize the nurses and the OBs and the midwives in the room because I know they may have had a long day and a hard day. And I feel like it's easier to have conversations about choices when everyone's feeling good about one another and we humanize the experience. You know, that nurse may have had like 10 patients. Also, that that nurse or OB could have been in a room with a client that had a demise. Like we don't know also what's going on with them. So when I enter a space, I'm not like coming in to fight. Okay. I'm there to really hold space for people. I don't name their story either. Like I had a client have, it was a twin client, had an extremely long labor, 30 plus hours. We really were together a very long time. And it ended up that after the 30 hours, there was a failure to progress. And it was leading into a cesarean delivery. The waters had been ruptured a long time. M multitude of things. I don't want to tell their whole story. Um, so they had a cesarean birth. And there was some hemorrhaging. And there were some scary moments. And I remember leaving. And I made sure they were tucked in before I left. I remember leaving and crying and feeling so sad that they had this traumatic delivery and really processing through that. And I talked to them a day or two later and the birthing person was just like, that was amazing. Every bit of it was amazing. I welcomed what? my beautiful babies. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for my partner. Um, thank you. And, and there was no negligence on the side of the, the medical team or anything. It was, you know, it was an induction it didn't take, you know, and it could have been for a multitude of reasons. And anyway, the moral of that story is 
I can't name people's stories for them. Mm. And my feelings of sadness and, oh, this traumatic birth, that was me naming somebody else's story. I had no right doing that, you know? And I learned a very, very valuable lesson um, that I can't name people's stories. And if your ideal birth story involves scheduling a cesarean, I'm going to support you in that. We also have to realize many people might be survivors of trauma. I treat everybody as if they've endured, especially birthing bodies, some level of trauma in their life. Um, And so when somebody says they don't want babies to come out of that part of their body, who am I to question that? Or a client says to me, breastfeeding doesn't feel like something I want to do. I'm going to honor that instead of ask them why. I mean, I can highlight pros and cons when someone asks me. But it is not my job to advocate on their body for what I believe. It makes me feel quite, could be the hormones, but it makes me feel quite emotional (laughs) because I feel like, um, uh, I'm going to say women here specifically, but, you know, people who are giving birth um, are subjected to um, levels of perfection constantly given things that they have to live up to so whether that be um breastfeeding that they must breastfeed that this breast is best and yes okay uh, yes maybe it is but maybe actually it doesn't work for that particular individual for whatever reason and actually you hear a lot of stories of people being really bullied really Mm guilt-tripped into very painful breastfeeding situations and the same with um I mean, is there another term other than natural birth I can use? Like vaginal birth, I suppose? I mean, I I use things like, I think all birth is natural. Yes. All birth is natural. And I think you give birth, even if you birth via cesarean, you're still giving birth. Um, Yeah, that's true. I think language is important. And we we kind of use terms to make us feel as if we failed in some way. Yes. You know, we've taken birth out of cesarean. Cesarean birth. You give birth. You lay your body down so that your babies are going to come out healthy and alive. That is like the ultimate sacrifice in parenting that I've ever seen in my life. That takes bravery and courage. So this thing that if you don't birth a certain way or you don't feed your child in a certain way, um, I reject it, all of it. Um, And yeah, it, it is. It's this like this perfectionism that we're trying to uphold that actually harms us more than it helps us. And, you know, I do use the term birthing people because I also guide folks that are non-binary and folks yes. that have gone through, you know, top surgery or gender reass- Like there there are, you know, folks that are on hormones and, 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 and everybody has their own story. And we have to be able to hold space for whatever that story is in my opinion yeah. and, it, and it's, it's, yeah. it's what I'm working towards it's so wonderful to hear this because uh, as, as we're saying it can be fetishized I think the vaginal birth or um or the breastfeeding or mm-hmm. the cer- certain situations that feels very au naturel very holistic and um, which is fine for some people but it's not necessarily the best thing for everybody and what's and what's so nice to hear is that this is about supporting the individual in their choices in their informed choices as opposed to living up to a certain standard that's being pressed upon them from the outside. What about mental health? The holistic model is what we should all really be driven towards because if somebody needs a cesarean delivery for their mental health and it may not be medically indicated, we need to hear and honor people. And we need to help them weigh the pros and cons and help them make an informed decision. But also people's mental health is a real, real important part of this that often gets missed 
in, okay, it might be best for babies to come out of the vaginal canal. They may, they may have the best chance of a healthy life and all this, or, or with feeding, infant feeding with breast milk as opposed to formula. But what about the mental health of the feeding parent? What about the mental health of both parents? If there are two parents, mm-hmm. why is that not taken into account? That's just as important. I think you're right in terms of the structural problems. You know, if we are, say, 50,000 staff members down or 100,000 staff members down within the NHS, that obviously puts more pressure on other parts of the system. So if you don't actually have the time to speak to a midwife for long enough or you don't see the same midwife, then your ability to trust is gained and then lost again isn't it and you've got to then learn to trust a new person again and also if, if you know if you've had life experiences that mean you don't trust very easily then that's going to make this area of your life and this area of your sort of life journey that's going to be even more stressful for you worse um, and i recognize that's that's a big problem um there are definitely ways that the nhs certainly in the uk could do that better part of that is staffing part of that however as i see it from what you're saying is partly educating before people get pregnant about what pregnancy is and what it will be potentially like. And I appreciate you can't just wear a, I don't know, a a, a four kilo weight around your middle and pretend that's a pregnancy like they try and do when you're like 12 and try and teach sex ed. But at the same time, we don't really talk about very much educational about sex or relationships. So I think there are lots of sort of systemic issues that are present within and then very personal factors that sort of weigh on top of that. But a big thing that you've been acknowledging is the sort of cultural hurdles that women have to get over every time you know they have to be breastfeeding they have to be um delivered vaginally they have to have had no no epidural because that's an admission of failure or the fact that you couldn't tolerate the pain that you're weak or whatever the child has to have walked within a certain period of time they have to have said their first words within a certain period of time you have to be a sexual being as soon as possible and even during pregnancy and this is something that i was really surprised about and had not expected is even in isolation like i'm not really seeing very many people at the moment but already I've had very specific comments on the shape of my bump using language for example like oh what a neat bump well done you and I thought uh, oh (laughs) so even in this stage of my life I have an ideal to live up to I can succeed or I can fail even now I have to be aware of what my body should look Mm -hmm. like as if I have control over it It's, it's, it feels never, never ending. And when you talk about education, Anand, it's so funny about the, the sex education stuff. I, I was almost shocked <laughs> at, um, well, I mean, the conception of my babies was thankfully very simple and very easy. And I'm very thankful and grateful for that. But I was so surprised that the education I received that unprotected sex would lead to a pregnancy actually was true. <laughs> So, oh, oh, it really works. Oh, it really works. <laughs> I, I just didn't trust the education, I think, because nothing else feels like it has, you know, that, that it was actually true to life. That there's one thing, like, don't use protection, you will get pregnant. Oh, right, yes, no, they did get that right. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're bearing witness, I think you said, um, as to what's going on. Uh, what is your role with sort of the birth partner in the room? I work with couples uh, prenatally, and I do anywhere from three to five, six meetings before the birth. And I'm more of a team member. I also support the partner sometimes more than I support the birthing person. But it, but it's true, partners, the ones that are very engaged, both hands-on and just emotionally present and very much there for their partners, I have to remind them to eat, to take a sip of water, to use the bathroom. Also too, they check my face. Is this normal? And a lot of that might not even be verbally expressed. That might just be like, oh, Lindsay's really chill right now. This is probably very normal part of the process. So I bring in this component of normalization of the process and it allows them to rid of some of their anxiety about the birthing process. They know they don't have to be the expert on birthing. And so I really like to work with the partner. I don't take over the role. I know there's this fear with doulas that like the doula is going to come in and take over the role of the, of the partner. Um, some doulas do this. This is why I recommend interviewing doulas. It's like blind dating. You have to really feel if it's a good, you know, the doula is going to see your butthole maybe, right? So <laughs> you really want to be comfortable with this person. Um, and the partner needs to like them too. If a partner and, and birthing person are really working well together, I like I talked about melting into the wall. I might even go into another room and wait until they need me for something. I might go home. They might be like, we feel like we're being watched. We don't really need you in this moment. I think we're a team. I don't view it as, as me being hired for the person giving birth. It's a team effort. Partners also need to be supported through this process, both during the pregnancy and, and after. Um, and, and they often get lost in this process too, which I think is another problem that leads to lack of support. The birthing person doesn't feel supported because their partner's not feeling supported. What do you find is the advice that you are often giving to birthing partners that you're, or the support that you're having to give them? I like to ask if they're worried about anything. Is there anything they're concerned about? Are there things that you really don't feel comfortable with that I can help support you with? Um, yes. You know, some partners are like, I really can't deal with needles. I'm like, okay, noted. And, and so I'm really mindful of when there's going to be a procedure where, you know, they might be getting an IV or an epidural, like making sure I'm like, hey, heads up, this is a good time to go on your walk. Or, you know, I, I faint at the sight of blood. Like, that's information I need to know. I've put in chairs under many partners who, listen, I once had a partner have a kidney stone while their, their, their wife was in labor and had to go to the ER and had to leave completely due to their own physical needs during the birth. Wow. And so my yes. role was to be the partner. Unbeknownst, like, I didn't realize that was going to be my role until this unfolded. I never know how I'm going to be of, of service until I'm in the moment. Because yes. partners are also like, I'm going to be so hands-on. I've got this. I'm going to do this. And then it unfolds and they're like paralyzed or the opposite. 
oh, I really, I'm just, you know, freaked out. And then the birth comes. I find this more the case. The clients that are a little freaked out end up really surprising themselves and are engaged in a way that profoundly changed them on like a cellular level. That happens more. Um, But I allow for that space. Imagine I just filled in all the blanks for that partner. That partner would end up resenting me. Mm. Um, And I use intuition. Not a lot of people trust their intuition. For me, I do read the energy in a space and I really try to trust my intuition. Like, oh, Lindsay, they're not receiving you well right now. Back up. So, Lindsay, when you're put in a space with these with people and, and say um, they feel they've not had a good experience and they perhaps uh, uh, rightly or wrongly are transferring that to you. They feel that, they're, that I don't know if you've ever been in a situation because as a doctor or healthcare professional, we can be on the receiving end of anxiety, frustration, anger, um, which may not be anything necessarily due to me or due to anything I could control. But it's my fault because I was the other person in the room. How do you deal with that? I mean, it happens all the time. I've been accused of, you know, a client having a cesarean birth because I allowed them to have an epidural and it led to a cesarean due to some complications from the epidural. And I allowed them to do that, you know, and that was my fault in not asking what their expectations were of a doula. I wasn't clear that I don't birth for them or guarantee a certain birth outcome. That was my fault. Um, We've had Clients have demises and also not want to communicate with doulas after or blame doulas. Um, it, it does happen. That transference of the experience happens. We have to also not personalize it. This is a way of these people processing their grief and their disappointment and, and maybe some of the traumas that come up for them because of this experience. Um, my advice, though, to other birth workers is really check your own story first before entering into this work. Really check your own triggers, traumas, and please don't bring that into somebody else's space because it could cause serious harm. And if somebody rejects you or blames you or puts that, you need to learn how to let that roll over you and practice within scope. Like doulas are non-clinical. Nothing that we could have done would cause a certain outcome because we are non-clinical in the support we provide. Clients make decisions for themselves. I don't tell anybody what to do. I don't encourage people to fight that aren't wanting to fight or push for something if they don't want to. If they ask me a question, I'm going to give them the evidence that supports what they're inquiring about. Yes, you're giving knowledge. You don't you don't have an agenda. No, it's about information. It's about informing, making informed choices. You guys talked too about Anad, you talked about intimacy after birth, right? So we make birth plans we make postpartum plans what about an intimacy postpartum plan wow like if we plan for all these other things like that six-week check-in I feel like perpetuates rape culture like oh six weeks you're healthy now you can have penetrative sex and it's so rooted in this like now you should be ready and I don't I'm speaking for myself here I wasn't ready for a very, very long time. Two sets of twins and pelvic floor health. Like we don't talk enough about honoring people's decision-making in that process with that six-week check-in because it's not only it's necessary for for checking in on the person's body, but it also in a lot of cases signifies when sex can resume. 
Do you find a lot of clients feel a huge amount of pressure to become sexually penetratively active um, after that amount of time? Yes. And like, we don't talk about things like pelvic floor health and and Mm. light bladder leakage. And like, we talk about these things like they're just supposed to happen. They're not. Like, we don't talk like a twin pregnancy, in my opinion, there should be pelvic floor support immediately postpartum. You know, it's yes. it's like you birth this baby, you check, you know, you in in the US, you you have a sex six week check-in. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like I, I had a mole removed, like a, a precancerous mole removed on my boob, and they wanted to see me a couple days later. And like I had more care with the mole on my boob than I did when I gave birth to my first set of twins. Why do you think that is? I, I don't I don't know if I have the full and I'm sure there's a multitude of reasons that I've thought about, but I don't know if there's just one good reason. But we don't prioritize birthing bodies in a way that we should after. It's like when you're pregnant, there's all this care, there's all this support, there's all this, you know, there's these um, pathways for support during birth. But then postpartum, it's like, OK, figure it out. And we kind of yes. drop people at the door, which is why yeah. in the U.S., the instances of perinatal mood disorders have skyrocketed, postpartum psychosis, all these other things have skyrocketed because we have to reimagine what support is. I think I feel very lucky in the area that I work in, um, just because the area of London, we have multiple health visitors. So they support anyone. So, you know, if you've just been born, you'll have contact from the midwife at home. You'll also have contact from the health, work, um, health visitor. Yes. And then on an ongoing basis, there are four places just within a two minute walk of us that you can just drop in every day to see a health visitor if you want to. So they cuss your breastfeeding or where you just weigh your baby. Because I'm a bit worried. I don't know if he's feeding OK. I don't know if yeah. he's putting on weight as he should do. Fine, just let weigh your baby, which is just such a small thing but actually gives such reassurance often or picks up issues early on and it, it supports a sort of emotional health financial support because they can signpost them mm-hmm. to the, you know, the uh, citizens advice bureau whoever they need to see but i think we're very we, i feel very lucky to have that wealth of experience locally that's embedded in our care which I, I imagine is not present either in other areas of the country um or certainly in other healthcare systems yeah, I mean, I love hearing that because I think it, it's here, but it's usually within the midwifery care model that it exists. But this isn't the standard of care, you know, and, and the mental health component. You mentioned that. You said the weighing of the baby. That's huge. F- sleep and feeding your baby are the two biggest concerns once they're born. Like, how am I going to ever sleep again? And, and is my baby gaining weight adequately? And if you're not sleeping, that's also an increased risk of perinatal mood disorders. And if your baby's not being fed, you feel like a failure. It's this cycle. If you had places, and this is where postpartum doulas and lactation counselors come into the picture, but these are all added expenses. These are not covered here. You can get a lactation consultant here to come to your home, but we're talking $350 for a visit. I think there is also an economic divide here, certainly, when it comes to sort of asking for immediate care as opposed to waiting for for a long period of time. I I wanted to ask you about your um, second twin's birth um, at home and the difference that you discovered. I had a little bit more anxiety um, just because I know what happens if, if something doesn't go as planned. I know what happens. And I really had to listen to my intuition, trust what my body was telling me. I had a plan. 
if something were to go amiss, like I live in New York City, I can get to a hospital in a couple of minutes from where I live. Um, so I, I had to wait, you know, I had a friend who is an EMT that lived nearby that was on call for us. Like I had all these things I, I, I maybe because I know too much, it also caused me to plan in a way that most people maybe wouldn't have. I don't like to take risks. Um, it's just not something I do. So I had an OB for the pregnancy. I hired a home birth midwife. Um, and once I actually went into labor and the birth was a couple of hours, it wasn't painful. Wow. Once I was able to release my anxiety and just trust the process, I had what some would maybe describe as the closest thing to an orgasmic birth that I could have. What it does was, that mean? There, I didn't, I had a lot of sensation because there were two massive babies coming out of my body, but it didn't process as pain. Wow. And, and so it, it was a very healing, transformative experience on just on every level. Um, my twins, I gave birth at 40 weeks. So I had declined the induction at 38. And one was eight pounds, one was seven pounds, nine ounces. Like they were massive. And this experience, though, wasn't without some complication. We talked a lot about the potential for a postpartum hemorrhage. It is part of why that 38-week thing comes into play for some practitioners. Um, so I did have some bleeding, but I also, my midwife, she was right there and, you know, she had medication ready. Like we talked about all of the what ifs. I would never encourage somebody to have a twin home birth. I would never tell somebody what to do. It was the right choice for me. And by me saying that doesn't mean it's something you should do. It's interesting when you say about the sensation of the birth was something other that it was intense, but it was not pain. And it's as close to as what you can describe as what people talk about when they speak about orgasmic births. Because I think um, when we think about birthing bodies, we often use the language of pain and not of pleasure ever. And I wonder if that's also connected to um, the sense of propriety about motherhood as well and about whether we are allowed pleasure as parents <laughs> or, or mothers. And and I was wondering if um, if you feel like that has changed your identity at all, that, I mean, you are a mother of seven. And is there space for sensuality, for uh, for sort of a previous self, I suppose, in, in your current identity? The birth, my twin home birth, where I experienced pleasure instead of pain definitely was transformative because um, for me, it allowed, it permissioned me to feel pleasure in places that I didn't know was possible or didn't feel permission to. So that shifted a very old narrative that I had for myself, um, you know, and I will never be who I was before I gave birth. I'm constantly evolving. I can never go back. There's no going back. Um, that's sometimes hard for partners, especially if you had a certain type of um, relationship that was um, very sensual and then it shifts with the birthing of your children. I think so everything is always an evolution and we have to be very honest with ourselves and with our partners on that path. Um, I don't think I, that I felt like I deserved pleasure. And a lot of it, I think, is rooted in self-worth and self-love, to be honest with you. Um, and we do focus so much on pain in birth. Why aren't we focusing on expansion? Mm -hmm. Between every contraction, there's a space. 
there's expansion. That's where the cervix softens. That's where the cervix opens is during expansion, during that space between the contraction. And if we can do that within ourselves, we can do that when we give birth. Lindsay's book, The Doula's Guide to Empowering Your Birth, a complete labor and childbirth companion for parents-to-be, is a guide to help you prepare physically and mentally for every element of having a child, from pregnancy to the fourth trimester. And is available from all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoy this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and helps to give the series a boost. Please do give us five stars. Thank you to Acast for hosting us, Matt Peaver for editing us, Ollie Birch for the music, Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex, and of course, pleasure. pleasure. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 